And we are live. Welcome back to the Digital Creators Podcast. Today we're in the studio with Ash. What's up, Ash? What is Welcome. up, Harry? And uh, today's episode is sponsored by Modus Cold Brew, supplied by Ash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really should have asked her for some sponsorship money. We, I should start doing it. Um, Not a bad idea. So Ash is a brand designer from Perth, Australia, with a background crossing between brand identity and web design. Ash has been in the design industry since 2016, is on the Australian Graphic Design Association, AGDA Council. He currently works at Chronix, which is a software developer company that focuses on robotics and the integration of robots into teams. Uh, their slogan is, we make your robot into a teammate. They're catchy. Very catchy. <laughs> <laughs> their robot suppliers include Agile X, Boston Dynamics and ClearPath. Um, in this episode, we're going to talk about Ash's background in design, his influences, his role at Agda, his job at Chronix, working internationally in designer, branding, animation, design, and more. So yes, yeah, very keen. I've just realized how amazing that bio makes me sound. It's, it's your best uh, bio yet. I, I mean, <laughs> we got we can use that one for your your website. I think so. That's coming out soon. Maybe yes, it is on this way. <laughs> um. But let's, oops, gonna press this button. That was loud. I, I don't actually rarely use these buttons, but we're gonna use it then. Let's go back to where you started as a designer because we want to talk about your design context a little bit and then we can um, talk about some other stuff. So yeah, where did you start as a designer and get to where you are today? Sweet. Uh, if we want to start where I studied, that was just TAFE. If we want to go back even further, what influenced me to become a designer? Oddly enough, I just had an inkling of it when I was a teenager. Probably like every other designer in existence, I had a like I had a love for drawing. That then led me on to one of my other interests, which was cars quite a lot. And then I drew cars a lot. That then moved into automotive desi design. Realized I was not really anywhere to study that in Australia. And then moved on to graphics. Because mm. I think, just from memory, wasn't it might be a newer course, but does ECU offer some sort of automotive design? I think they might have unit? a product design. Yeah, like a physical, um, not product design, industrial design course. Oh, okay. And I think that's that's probably a good stepping point actually now to go into automotive design. But I've realized as you want to do that seriously, you're going to have to go into a very, very small pool of people. And it's got to be international. You've got to travel all yeah. the way to like There's not much of an academy in, in the US or the UK for that. Yeah, why Why is that? Is it because there's no, like we don't create cars here anymore, so then there's no work opportunities basically? Pretty much it, yeah. Cars aren't designed in Australia anymore. They're not created here anymore. Then uh, in industry-wise, the automotive industry has pretty much left Australia. Yeah, because we used to have Holden and Ford and then Ford went and then Holden recently. Ford pulled out of Australia. Holden, because it was owned by General Motors, they also just like stopped producing cars here in 2015. I think they found it not financially viable. Yeah. Mm, interesting. I do wish we still had that market here, but obviously, yeah, because I always think like, oh, we have got what's such a big mining industry here, like creating and refining the ores and minerals 
why couldn't we just turn that into something? Because we just ship it out, basically. We don't really produce much here. So I was like, can't we use that for the car industry? It would have. I thought it would have made sense. If only. Mm. I think if we had an if we had any um like actually actual manufacturers based in Australia, no doubt we'd have some kind of industry, even if it wasn't a small scale. But I think everyone with a with an interest to run a car company doesn't like doesn't exist in Australia right now. Just because uh, you have an interest in cars, as you were saying, you know, since young age. Um, do you know why there are, you know, car manufacturers are viable in Germany and the US, which are like you know, first world countries, but not Australia? Why, why do you think that is? If you had to take a guess. Well, if I was going to take a guess, and this would be a really wild guess, it'd probably be because we as a country, we don't love cars as much as those countries do love producing them. Yeah. Well, and, and sorry, I was going to mention like Japan and China, but they're like the obvious ones where they actually make a lot, they have do a lot of production there. But yeah, Germany and the US, you know, they make. Cars. Yeah. But yeah, you, you say we don't, we don't, uh, we don't love cars as much. Or is it someone uh, on a podcast previously said it might be to do with education? Like, say, there's no. TAFE and uni courses that teach you probably there's stuff in that industry. There's probably a very limited amount of people who actually want to learn it as well. Yeah, like actually, if you look at the scale of how uh, how massive car companies are, it's like it's probably measurable to the scale. It's comparable to the scale of like airlines and how many of those are like financially viable as a business these days, or really really volatile. Let's say in their in their own markets. Okay, now uh, actually, you know what? Now we're going on to a topic I know nothing about. I'm, uh, and now I'm, yeah. I'm speculating. Speculating. No <laughs> speculating, I think. Guys, fact check this stuff. But <laughs> I think it's an interesting topic. But speculating, yeah, there's no. We don't focus. Uh, I guess because this is a creative podcast. I've said it before on this podcast. Like, even as a industry, as an economy, we don't. We focus more on, say, mining, getting the resources, but we don't focus on creating resources. Say, China or Japan, their industry is creating things, creating technology, creating cars. Uh, we don't focus on that here, um, which is a shame, but, yeah. But it's also, it's not fair to say that we don't have an automotive industry at all. Just because we don't have the manufacturing industry, we've also got, we do have, a strong aftermarket industry. Like selling point. Yeah, because you said we don't love cars, but dude, we've been to the car. Yeah, we that people love cars here. What are you talking about? Sorry, yes. We do uh I stand corrected on that. Thank you for pointing that out. So we yeah, we do love cars in Australia. It's hard not to be around this kind of crowd. We don't love making cars. <laughs> Possibly so. I don't think we just got uh, maybe we're just missing out on certain demands. And what well, uh, Actually, we've got some of the most lenient laws when it comes to like modifying cars as well. That's why I think uh, really yeah. not compared to Japan. And probably not compared. To I Japan. mean, that would be argued in the car community for sure. I know it would be, <laughs> but I feel like that I've had an I've had a number of arguments with other people in the car community about this, and I feel like a lot of them, uh, like a lot of the people that I have argued with lack perspective. Okay, 
and that's it. That's it. It's already a strong so, to start. So what on. is your argument? Because this actually relates to the creative scene and just because um, when you have – because I feel like Perth or Australia, our we don't value creativity nearly as much as other places like Japan, for example, where, you know, it, it's that creative culture like Japan, they they have more passion for design. You look at the design, their architecture, you look at the clothes – people wear you look at the modifications on cars the car community it's much more creative than here in perth or australia because of the restrictions and i just compare japan's architecture to our architecture or their public art spaces their galleries you know that sort of thing oh yeah no doubt if you look at the financial side of it yeah we don't have as much of a big budget for that kind of like that interest we don't really value creativity in design yeah, fin- uh, financially, yeah. the government doesn't. We know that for sure. Like, if you look at like the the arts budget that goes into the cities in Australia compared to like the ones that would go into a city like Paris or yeah. or a country like France or um, yeah, Japan. For it, uh, uh, to continue your point, definitely. I I also think that we we see that as a result of the exposure we get of those con- those countries. So we uh, we see a lot of what comes out of Japan. We don't actually know, uh, like, um, well, sorry, I remember speaking to a lot of people who have lived in Japan who have said you can live in certain communities in Japan and just be completely sur- like cut off from a lot of the other interests around you. You can you can be completely isolated from the car the car culture over there if you just don't look for it. Yeah, I guess from a outsider perspective. Japan, you know, you look at peop- what people are wearing. They take pride in what they're wearing, say, in the fashion industry. There's a, there's a bigger... I mean, like, obviously, the fashion industry is probably bigger in Paris, but, I mean, Japan and South Korea, it's still quite... It's, a, it's bigger than over in Australia. There's Seoul Fashion Week, Japan Fashion Week. If you look at the car industry, like, Japan is known for their cars as well, but that, as you were saying, is, like, an outsider perspective. Also random thing japan's also known for it's like creative skateboarders which is like a random thing but yeah it's another niche yeah no doubt there is there is so many deep niches in japan on like people who have really carved their way through their own communities over there and Mm. developed so much like so much of a reputation for that community and any of it that comes over here it's quite easy to either overlook it or just not be exposed to it but then um yeah, I think I think your point was if you're actually living and working in Japan, your day to day is just going to work, coming home for work, and you don't. Uh, yeah, it's easy to exist in your own bubble. Yeah, but I'd say for yeah outsiders, like obviously travel is a huge industry. Why do people love going to Japan? They love the culture, the food, the museums, the art, the cars, the, the aesthetics, the architecture. Which is like, why Why should someone come to Perth? It's like less of a reason to travel to Perth because there's, in my opinion, there's a lack of value on creativity, on spending money on the arts. So then there's like less of a reason to come here. Because I think the arts, is like, arts and culture is one of the main reasons why people travel besides like outdoor nature sort of stuff. That's a good point, actually. When it comes to tourism-wise, I don't know how much we rely on the arts. That's, uh, that's a good point. P- 
people people come here i guess the nature side of things what's already here margaret river up north uh I guess, yeah, of course. In the wine wine, wine industries, we're we're known for like producing a lot of really really nice stuff. That's that is a creative industry that I guess is thriving. I mean, like Margaret River and Swan Valley, known for its wines, but it's quite limited if you compare it to like other places. So I feel like that's something that I would like to see have more funding because tourism is huge. The nature side of tourism, it's like, it's kind of speaks for itself, but we need to focus more on the arts and. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Mind you, I think I think everyone in their everyone in their own industries are going to make their uh, their own arguments as to why they should be getting more more attention, and how how much their their own industry will affect tourism. And uh, be interesting to get your perspective on this because it has been discussed in previous podcasts, which is. Perth or Australia doesn't value creativity because the mining industry is such a huge income for us. So most people, like most people, most businesses, it kind of all kind of ties into the mining industry and because it's kind of easy to get work in the mining industry, the mentality is kind of like, say, work in mining, I can make a lot of money, I can buy a house, a nice car, a boat, uh, um, my own land. We have sort of more individualistic culture from this. Why do we need the arts? There's not really, they don't value it because they feel they've already got, they're already sorted. They don't really think of outside of that. Okay. Um, For asking my opinion on that, yeah, I I think you've, uh, you made a good point. I, uh, I can't really say I have much to add to that, Harry. But I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's cool. <laughs> like I mean. It's it's definitely a valid it's a valid perspective and it's one that you de- like you can definitely pick up around Perth because um, you notice a lack of push towards the arts. In yeah, because in the community, in the environment, in in our cities, you'll realize a lot. The lack of influence compared to a city like Melbourne or compared to yeah. a city like in fact I don't know how much how much it affects Brisbane and Sydney. See uh yeah, definitely places like Melbourne there is a more you can feel like there's more it's a creative vibe. Yeah. The whole city is full of a more value vibe. on creativity and culture. Yeah. Compared to here, if you walk around the city it's all kind of stocks out if you look at the art, the Public art. Yeah, that's my take. I'm with you on that. Unfortunately, I don't think I've got anything else to add to it. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and then, so Agda, you're on the Agda Council? Yes. And uh, you've been on there for a few years. For people listening who are into design, maybe the design students, um, yeah, what is Agda? Oh yeah, of course. So um, if we are speak, if we are reaching out to students, which I'm hoping we are, then like the uh, the Australian Graphic Design Association is pretty much what uh, what it's labelled as. It's the organisation that you would sign up to when you get into the industry that helps represent our our community, our and 
pretty much the the connections that um that make up the industry. It has some. Oh, I forgotten. Yeah, you know what? I've forgotten how. Uh, you can, you <laughs> can just about on of Agda. I think we can link that somewhere. Can can't we? Yeah, we can. We can link it below. Um, but just like off off by heart, like what what's your role and what uh, role does Agda have here? And yeah, Earth? of course. So on the council of uh, of Agda, you uh, we have about twenty odd people, and we run events for the graphic design industry uh, for our own state. We do Agda WA. Um, we do at least one event per month, plus another free. Um, Free to attend gathering. Sorry about that. Um, and that free to attend gathering is the Agda Social. The Agda Social every last Monday of the month. If I'm not wrong. And yeah, th- it's it's just a nice place to, to casually come grab a drink after work, and just meet other designers, uh, which is really refreshing if you're not working your day to day with other designers. But it's also uh, it's just a really really good place to go to get more community aspect outside of your work. Yeah, 100%. I think it's so important as a designer to, you know, attend these sort of events because it's like outside of that, who do you really talk to? Even at uni, Mm -hmm. like I can talk to teachers and stuff, but even they're kind of, they're now teachers and maybe they've been a teacher for a certain number of years. They're not actually... They might not actually be involved in the design community, and I think personally, as a student who attended these events, it's like there's just really good networking opportunities. And I don't know where else you would go. And I do really like the relaxed atmosphere that you like. You like to give you example for students listening. You just sometimes it's at Pika Bar. You just go down Pika Bar, grab a drink, and hang out, talk to people. It's very yeah. chill vibes, and you meet at a very social level. You don't meet someone like they are a professional. And, yeah, um, which is... Like you look up to them. You you meet them on a very, very casual level of, hi, who are you? Where do you come... Yeah. Uh, like, where are you working at the moment? And then you start you start the, with the small talk. And then eventually, you'll, you'll eventually see the same people at another event. You'll carry on these conversations. You'll develop these relationships with people around the industry. And plus, not really just limited to designers either. Because uh, quite a few of our Agda socials have been attended by engineers, software, uh, like programmers. Photographers. Photographers. <laughs> um, yeah, everyone, everyone kind of it, either from a creative background or someone interested in getting involved in the creative background. And I think that's the best way to network. Like I, at these corporate events, it can be intimidating if everyone's in like business suits and you know, little tags. It's like, it's harder to want to talk to them. But here at Agda Social, it's just like, we're just hanging out at Little Barn. It's just like so much easier to chat. And sometimes you're just chatting to someone, you don't even realize their background and you find out, oh, they're working at some big agency or... That's true. It's pretty cool. But yeah, the the diff- uh, as much as like other, other industries and communities also run these similar kind of events, Agda runs the ones which obviously get advertised towards designers. Yep. But... That being said, definitely not limited down to uh, uh, just designers attending. Yeah. Um, and then we'll just kind of add in there, if you're a student, you might also want to check out TDK. I'd recommend like TDK as well. Of course. Which is the design 
kids and uh, they also have like creative like design events. Yes, as much as like the the two organisations are kind of hand in hand in Australia as well, uh, the Design Kids is a complete different organisation. It's right. It, you will have a local. Uh, what is it? You'll have a local um, city host that will be running their own events every month, and they'll usually run separate to Agda. But the same people who attend Agda will attend a TDK event. Um, quite often it's like a professional or, or will be a special guest at the student events at TDK. Yep. But TDK itself is an international organisation. Yep. Do you know where TD, like the main uh, organisation of TDK is based? Um, in Sydney, if I'm not wrong. Sydney, okay. Well, Eastern States, definitely. We, um, it was started by someone, by a British gal, which came to Australia and she... Uh, pretty much saw the hole in uh, yeah. or that gap between students and professionals and started running events, I think, down in Melbourne, Tasmania. Yeah, TDK is also a great one to go to. I would say the difference between Agda and TDK, uh, or at least, okay, so there's, and you correct me if I'm wrong, there's Agda, Agda Social, which is more like relaxed, you know, maybe drinks and chat, like networking. And then there's uh, Freshmints by Agda. Yes, that is one of the first events of the year. And that's usually run hand-in-hand hand with TDK. Um, okay. Cool. Yeah, it's a uh, large influence by um, by students in that event. And it's usually the, uh, usually involves a panel of speakers who have been in the industry for less than 10 years and just passing on whatever knowledge they've got or knowledge and wisdom to just any question that comes in. So it's, it's more of like a panel, it's uh, a panel talk and a yeah. question and answer sort of. Yeah. The, the structure of that kind of event is very much um, question and answer. It's not, uh, no one's really telling their story at that kind of event. They're merely just sharing, uh, just answering questions. Okay. With a, with a professional aspect of it. And uh, how would you describe kind of the structure at TDK events? Because uh, from memory... It's also kind of a question and answer event. TDK is supposed to be a lot more casual because it's aimed at the students, which are probably just – they're just finishing classes before they just turn up to the event, and it will be either at a bar. It's a lot more – it's just as casual as maybe a Agda Social, okay, okay, but cool. it's mostly just uh, students and grads which turn up to them. And it's a generally a really good thing because um, their featured guests will be – Either an agency or it'll be a um, yeah, yep. it'll be an in industry professional, which will be a featured guest, or who else would it? Can't remember what what else we did. Yeah, we did a quite a few agency visits, if I'm not wrong. So it's almost like um, some workshops as well, like a casual freshmen's, I guess, where it's not really like a. It's hardly ever a formal setting, TDK. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's uh, if it is a formal setting, it will be within an, the the boardroom of some agency, but every everything is very v still very casual. The yeah, there's still quite a yeah. Lot I remember like now. Sometimes yeah, sometimes the uh, the meeting point is at a bar, but sometimes it's actually at the agency itself. So then you can get a feel of the agency, and um, there's people that work at the agency there, and you could like chat to them, network. Of course. Yep. Yeah, I think that's uh. That's really key as a young designer, especially in Perth, to 
yeah, get involved in ACTA and TDK. Um, the, w- the best way I could probably uh, describe TDK for students is, is your first opportunity to meet someone outside of your course. Yeah. Because I remember being at TAFE and everyone was kind of stuck within our little group of being at TAFE. As soon as you step out of that classroom and go to a TDK event, you've then Im- instantly met people who are going to be graduating the same time as you from a uni course rather than your TAFE course. Yep. And then you get more exposure to that part of the industry because there are people I still keep in touch with right now and the relationships I really highly value from people I graduate the same year from that I met through TDK but didn't do the same TAFE course as myself. Mm. And for also for the designers listening or design students, what uh, kind of advice would you give to them they're like maybe last year of their course um, and they want to kind of get out there, get their work out there. Okay, so you're, if you're in your last year at last year at uni or TAFE, you're already too late. No. <laughs> no. Um, no, this is your opportunity. You're never, it, it's never too late to go to a, an industry event and just say hi to people. You can start it, – it's a great developer of your own – self-confidence to d- turn up to these kind of events and just uh, like I guess uh, pick up the enjoyment out of meeting a lot of people it's definitely one of those things I picked up after attending so many industry events and mm. specifically TDK and Agda uh, after attending and mingling uh, amongst different people that you might see again you might might have some connection to later it's best to turn up and never also never Never have the intention of trying to get something out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, you, yeah. uh, you will meet people who who just have similar interests to you and you'll no doubt click with some and create some really interesting friendships out of it. Some things might turn up in the future. Uh, like yeah, that's out important. Out of those connections yeah. as well. That's an important um, outset to have. Like, just go to the events and enjoy meeting people and they enjoy like the networking opportunities but obviously like if there's an opportunity yeah like reach out um, yeah by all means uh, reach out i and i i say this all well knowing that i was one of the students that made that error in my first industry event no doubt when i when i saw someone from industry i was just like can i get an internship with you yeah and and that that, that's didn't that uh, not only set a bad first impression with that person that I met, they actually left a, a kind of bad taste in their mouth for the next time they met me. But since then, I can safely say, if you go with a different approach, you can quite easily fix that relationship. Yeah, actually. So, are you saying um, your approach was like you went to this event and then you like then either. you ask? Okay, I think I was the same to be honest. When after going to these events, so what? Yeah, what mindset do you? advice or as we were saying before like go there and network but what would you advise to a student that wants to get an intern opportunity but they don't want to you know be too eager about it and ask maybe like right away like oh i just met you i'm gonna send you an email yeah i i i'd say just uh Focus don't on your portfolio or well, yeah, while you're in your final year anyway, you should be focusing on making a decent portfolio. I don't say, I wouldn't say try to flog it straight away because people will remember you more on your character than they will on your work. 
So when you were, uh, uh, it's best to arrive at an at an, an industry event with the intention just to meet people and say hi. If you spark off a relationship out of that, to say uh, with maybe asking questions like, "Hey, are there any opportunities at?" Certainly, so you're, yeah. So you can yeah. If asking it, questions is okay, asking questions is completely fine. Yeah, and uh, it, it can be really, really like you can uh, you can ask really, really nerdy questions as well about like what kind of, what kind of what's your um what's the word I'm looking for. What's your workflow like? What's yeah, your day to day like? Okay. You can, uh, by all means, ask those kind of questions. So, but but don't like maybe ease. I'm like obviously you have a goal in mind, which might be, say, if you're student getting an internship or something like that. Uh, but ease into it, like get to know the person first, and yeah, and that's that why sort of that's approach. why I feel like it's important to do this to start attending events while you're still a student. You're better because uh, if you turn up as a graduate, then the chances are you're going to have that more on your mind of like, yeah, I need to get a job quickly. Mm. You're gonna you're gonna get let those intentions settle in, and it might come across as a, lot, uh, a little bit bitter and a little too ego, mm. or uh, egocentric or e- eager. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, Moving on to, well, actually, I want to talk about your journey as a designer. Like, you graduated, and then did you do an internship, or did you freelance for a bit, and then I went into what was your what's your journey? I did two internships. So, um, yeah, in my uh, final year at TAFE, first six months, there was an opportunity that came on into the classroom of uh, getting some social media experience. And that was just like running. Uh, it was an uh, sorry. It was an opportunity that came up out of a previous student to run some social media accounts for a six month long internship. Or I think it might have been like three months long. Maybe I I stayed there for six months, but it was only one day a week. And so therefore, it was like just what I did in between classes. It was a really good a good little first exposure to the work uh, line of work and just the marketing side of design and just producing a whole load of visual assets that will go up onto different companies social media accounts and also those those companies had no idea what what you were doing in the background they knew that i at the time i didn't realize i was a strategist above me yeah actually making all the decisions as to like what i was going to be producing so it made uh, it made sense it gave me a lot of exposure to the marketing side Mm. straight after graduating i I did an internship at Human, yep. which is one of the top digital agency agencies at in Perth. Yeah, but I spent quite a lot of my quite a lot of my final year developing those relationships that managed to give me the opportunity to then ask the CEO of that company, "Can I come get an internship at your company?" Yeah, and yeah, because they were like interested in giving me a chance, they were just like, "Yeah, of course." And I don't think they've actually turned down a lot of people. Uh, to if they're asking for an internship for sure because i think i know a handful of people which have gone through human as uh, yeah. as interns and they've gotten a hell of a lot out of it yeah well i guess it's good to think uh if you're a designer wanting an internship think about the value you're going to provide to that company as well 
So then you can even like position yourself in a way like you want to bring this. Excuse me. <laughs> you want to bring this to um to that agency. Like I think so. That that's that's a good thing to keep in mind off like when you're trying to transition into full time work because no doubt a company wants to wants to know what you're going to bring to them. But uh, if you're just joining as an intern, I don't think it's necessary for you to have the mindset of what can I bring to this company? Because as an intern, you're supposed to be getting more out of that experience than the oh, agency okay. is getting out of you. Oh, okay. And I think it, it's not only just like a legal requirement. That's, uh, that is like ethically the, be the best agencies will be working to make sure you get more out of the experience there than they get out of you. I agree, but then what's why would an agency want an internship? I guess they're getting like unpaid work in a way that's their benefit. Um, not exactly. They, they maybe like a good reputation in the design it's, industry. It's yeah, it's more. Uh, it's one of those things that sorry, a good reputation is one of those things that's going to come out of it. Okay, but also, um, they get exposure to someone which they might want to hire in the future. Okay, yeah, because so companies are always looking to like hire good talent yeah and true. of course like if you've got someone who's proactive and coming at you straight from being in uh in uni or tafe it's quite easy to see that value very quickly therefore they can afford to give you that uh if they've got the resources they can afford to give you that time in their facilities and actually like uh, give you some exposure help you grow over that that time which is kind of like it's like an onboarding for possible future staff. Yeah, exactly. So then, because yeah, sometimes I guess as an agency you want, you know, maybe you're looking for people, but if you already have someone that has interned with you and you like their work ethic and you've built a relationship with them, it's like an easy, and you you can be doing them a favor than like reaching out. To, Hello, we need more staff. Yeah, for sure. Of course. Um, also. Um, I know I skipped uh, uh, I skipped over a period of point a uh, period of time there, but like uh, if you are a graduate in your final year at, at uni or TAFE, Agda WA runs a um, a mentorship program, which quite okay. often gets people into their internships straight after graduating. Oh, that's cool. So the mentorship program you choose you you basically have a pick of wherever you want to go in Perth, and if they have a designer or a an art director which is willing to be a mentor in that program then you get to you get to meet them you get to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with a professional and actually get and learn directly from a professional in your last like six months of study three to six months something like that and then now uh, you've already developed a good relationship at that point with s an industry professional by the time that you graduate oh that sounds like a really good program yeah yeah i was gonna say were you exposed to it I don't think I remember it. I'm sure it was was there, but is it anyone can apply for it or Yeah, was, of course. So they open it up in uh September, October time. And uh the industry industry professionals sign up first to say I, I'm willing to be a mentor and then uh the applications for students open. And if you get uh if you manage to settle with the person that you chose, then that's awesome. You get the you basically make your own arrangements to meet up with them. If you don't have a preference of who you want to meet, but you have an in, you have an industry focus that you want to learn, 
then Agda WA will pick a professional for you mm. that has uh, the uh, the qualities that you want to match. Okay. Which is really good because like you you never know where you're going to get your influences from. Yeah, that sounds like a really good thing to do. Yeah. So it's a brilliant initiative. Happens every year. At, and if you're a student in Perth studying graphic design or studying uh, anything in the creative space, you'd be silly not to apply for it because it is completely free. Yep. And yeah, just giving listeners a context for me because some people know me just as a photographer, I guess. But yeah, I have a degree in graphic design and I was uh, quite involved as a student and after graduating for a bit in the design industry. So that's actually how I met Ash, which is, we didn't cover that, but anyway. we just. Oh yeah, we, had, we, haven't discovered <laughs> we haven't discussed how we met properly. We, we met, it must have been at an actor event or TDK. I think it might have been TDK. Probably TDK. There we are, listeners. Maybe Attend yeah. TDK events, especially if you're in Perth, because you might come across Harry or myself. Exactly. I think it was at Curtin. Or maybe, might have been at a portfolio review, which is another thing. Portfolio review is another event that happens, yeah, through Agda. So and yes, yeah, definitely TDK, uh, TDK members or attendees will attend a grad, um, what was it, a portfolio review. But... Again, if you're not hearing about these opportunities, I'm sorry, we're not doing a good good enough job. Well, here we are promoting them now. And also, I think it was, yeah, just, I mean, if you're not following Agda on Instagram, I'll li- I'm leaving like all the links in the show notes. So check that out also, TDK and Ash's Instagram. So go follow them and then you can see these opportunities. Of course. For sure. Um, so, oh, that was my other question, which is, is AGDA a government-funded organisation? No, so, um, no, AGDA is, um, I was about to say not-for-profit. No, uh, so every division of AGDA, the state AGDAs are non-for-profits, but AGDA as a whole organisation is for-profit and it's an, uh, just industry separate private industry organisation. So you can you can pay for memberships. Ah, gotcha. Active memberships. Yep. Yes, but uh, that n- none of that goes to this. There's not necessarily state run those memberships. Those are national. Okay. And what benefits do you get from being an active member? I wish I knew all those off the top of my head. Ah, okay. Uh, we can ch- we can check the website then. Yeah, definitely check the website because there's a handful of different benefits that you can get as an active member. Um, I feel like I've done enough promotion for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Back back to you, Ash. Um, so you were at Human, and then what happened after that? And while I was at Human, I picked up a handful of uh, mentors and made a bunch of friends with the team there. After, literally, after uh, I think a week of finishing that internship, I got a f- my first full time position, and. This is uh, actually I may as well expose myself. Uh, expose myself completely. That uh, that experience lasted a week. Okay, <laughs> my first full time job in design lasted a week. Um, I won't disclose the company name, but um, yeah, I I was one of those students, which was I think, uh, or one of those graduates, I think, uh, was a bit little too big headed, thinking, oh yeah, I can definitely do this. Mm. 
and I bit off a little bit more than I could chew. And basically that um that ended up just being a big learning opportunity for me. Yeah. So yeah. I was uh, when I say a bit off more than I could chew, I was like I, I was way too eager for that position as well. And I just happened to turn up at the right building where they were looking for a designer and they were happy to hire me. Which was probably a red flag actually. If you turn yeah, up to a job in there and yeah. they're happy to hire you after yeah, literally true. saying hi, it's probably a red flag. It means either they're they struggling don't or something like that. Like they need like staff ASAP. They definitely do it there in, but also you they they don't know enough about you to confidently make that decision after one meeting. Yeah. But they were willing to give me a chance. And then it ended up being a learning learning opportunity, therefore I cannot complain about it. Fair Which enough. is a good way I think that anyone should look at it like a job that they lose. Like think of it as a learning opportunity, especially if you're like a graduate. Don't take that don't take that to heart immediately because you might just be in the wrong place at the wrong wrong time. And also I think we should add in this is probably before human, if you actually worked a couple of jobs here at district where this podcast is happening. Actually, no, that was after human. That was after. Yeah, okay. so that this was that was even after the full time position, and I went. I went freelance. I uh, went looking for clients. Then, and then I got, and then I kind of kept within the Agda community, the TDK community. I made sure I was active within those, and then eventually my portfolio got passed around to District was one of them. Yep. And I met, I met some of the old team here. Yeah, Barry. Barry. Back. Yep. Cool. And uh, and then. That. And then I freelanced around a, a couple different um, tiny, tiny agencies and uh, shared spot, uh, shared offices. So, like Claysbrook Design Community was one of them. And if if designers haven't been there, it's it's going to be a like it's a really, really nice venue space that also has shared um, hot desks cool. and also tiny offices as well. So they do like they're really, really catered towards the tiny. Small startups. Awesome. Deliveroo was based out of there for a significant portion of time. Wait, what was that? Deliveroo? Deliveroo in Perth was based out of that building. Oh, okay. Yeah. When they first started, I guess, or... Yeah, okay, that's interesting. And a couple of small agencies are based in there as well. Yeah, they've they've kind of gone through the space or they've grown in the space. I guess uh, another piece of advice for young designers is the power of... uh, Co-working spaces, oh, even if like you want to like hire out a space for like co-working or whatever, it's like you can meet so many different people. Absolutely, and so much uh, so much opportunity comes out of, and this is I, I feel like it's underrated uh, as a as a method of looking for work. If you're just around, people are often just yeah, looking for the for convenient sure. it's like per- it's, it's person. A, there. It's a great way to get work. Absolutely, like it, it, I've I've known of plenty of different people getting those kind of opportunities in different industries especially like if they work for a uh, like a car company or yep. an automotive company and they just start off as a cleaner and then they just happen to be around at the time where someone needs help or an opinion then like they get in with the right person so if you're conveniently around in a co-working space and you you might already have some of your own work to do but I can guarantee you there's someone in that building that will need some some graphic design services or photography services, depending on what you're offering. 
and they'll immediately come to you and they'll be like, can you quickly do this for me? Mm. Because I can't, yeah. I don't have the time to hire a, a freelance designer. Yeah, exactly. Um, random. Immediately, it's that, it's that foot in the door kind of experience. Random question. Wh- what are Asher's top five co-working spaces in Perth? Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. Actually, I haven't thought about that one, one bit. Um, uh, Claysbrook Design Community. I can I, I can put that at the top of my list because I was there the longest, and I just have that connection with the place that they also used to be a TDK, was it a hub for when we were, we were running it, and well next Flux, Flux is where I got uh, the opportunity to work at Chironics, so definitely them. Uh, Subi Space was also a really good one. Subi Space is a nice, tiny, tiny community. I'm not sure if they still exist anymore, though. Oh, there's one in uh, West Perth. I can't remember the name of. WeWork? No, it, was, it wasn't a WeWork. It was actually a really, really tiny office. Uh, they is it still running? I think so. They've got a coffee shop that's like connected to them. Whereabouts in we can have a look. West Perth co-working. Oh no, I think it might be Cleaver yeah, you Street. Yeah, you can you got your computer there, yeah. Cleaver Street and Co. Something like that. Oh Cleaver Street, yeah. They uh, that's like a event space as well you can hire out. Yes, that was it. Yeah. I, d- I can't remember I can't remember the last time I was there. But what's, I d- what's the name? Cleaver Street and Co. I think so. They're right next to um some uh, screen printing t-shirt place and uh, yeah in between Northridge and Leaderville kind of area they're definitely on my list is that four? I think that's four F- uh, five I'll just put as Space Cubed because I know there's so many people who worked f- worked there cool but also Space Cubed is like the cheaper version of Flux awesome and so you were at Human and then you went sort of freelance. Is that when you started, uh, you got a desk at Flux after that? Actually, no. Um, after after Human, I start, uh, I was just floating around uh, freelancing. Yep. When, it, when a job came up, I would, uh, I'd take it for maybe a month, month or so at a time. Yeah. So therefore, I ended up in a bunch of different places just doing general graphic design work. And that was like building companies in Osborne Park then um, small agency in New, uh, in Claysbrook. Then where else did I do? <laughs> Quite a few different places, I think. So at say at uh, Claysbrook Design Community and Flux, were you you weren't actually you didn't have a desk there or anything. You were just working for people that at were Clays- there. At Claysbrook, I did have a desk, and I was there for quite a few months. And I I started building up my own client base there, and that uh, that got me more exposure to like the building industry which uh seemed like a very decent like kind of client base to go with is uh, or good market to break into at the time because there was a, a few different companies looking to build at that point and start from scratch and they were like focusing on renewable materials and stuff like that so i thought my i thought my design career might have gone in that particular direction mm-hmm. but then after a couple of months i got stiffed by a client and i was like Probably not going to stay in this yeah. industry. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, then I, out of nowhere, I think I had a uh, good couple months off at that point and just started looking at opportunities overseas. I w- and the opportunity to go back to the UK came up through family because we were, we were going go back for a wedding anyway at a particular time. And I just yep. said, why don't I just look at staying in the UK the next time we go back? Before I, And just before I did that, I got called into Flux. By a okay. by a previous friend at um, that I made at at Claysbrook Design Community. Okay, cool. And the company that she was then working for then hired uh, hired me as a freelance designer. And at the time, there were only about eight people big. Yep. And that company happened to be Chironics. And then I was with them when they moved out of Flux. Uh, so maybe about three months, no, two months before I went over to the UK. There we go, networking guys. Yeah. You uh, these opportunities, you never know uh, where they're going to come from, and the chances are, uh, you're going to get quite a few interesting opportunities from from people who you know outside of design, mm. because if they if they are in marketing, for example, which that person was, they were like head of marketing at Coverings at that point, and they needed a designer. They needed someone who could do something practical. Therefore, they looked for their the first person they knew. And you mentioned you got that job at uh, Chironics just before you moved to Mel- uh, London for a bit? Yes. Then I went to the UK. To the UK. Um, so did you just, you were freelance and you just did a few freelance jobs for Chironics before moving? That's correct? Yeah. Saved up a bit of money and just like used that as, uh, I guess, my my bedrock of... yeah and starting point in the UK. But I had family to stay with in the UK. Okay. And then you kind of kept that Chironics connection, and then when you came back, you got a full-time job there. Yeah, actually, uh, it was a year and a half after moving over. And then where where were you working in the UK? Just out. uh, Just just freelance. Yeah, so I was freelancing for the entire time I was there. And just doing it now. So I applied for a heap of jobs before I went over, and most of them were in like agencies in London. And I really wanted to break into the into the London, I guess the uh, that the London scene. design industry and the scene over there. Yeah, there was plenty of plenty of opportunity, but like I knew the the first place to start looking would be recruitment agencies. And at that point, I realized how. Uh, it didn't really pay off being a general a general designer or song uh, multidisciplinary. Okay. Yes, because in a in a city like London, it really pays off to have a niche yep. and know your and know your one topic and go deep within mm. that one topic because people are just looking for someone who can do one one particular job at a time. Yep. It's an oversaturated city when it comes to like, I guess talent. Yep, for sure. And uh, so you weren't were you successful in finding an agency? I was not. So you sent out a lot of emails, but loads and loads of like, yeah, email, emails, CVs, uh, and portfolios. Like I, I developed a ridiculous amount of portfolios over that like first year of being there, and each and every one of them had a lot of effort put into them. But I were just they weren't aiming anywhere in particular. Okay. So yeah. even though they were like tailored towards agencies and with like particular notes written to those agencies and those people within those agencies, like I, I remember doing the research because you know, it pays off to do the research quite a lot of the time when you're just like, okay, I know this person is the art director at this, co- at this company. 
I will reach out to them in particular. I'll make friends with them on LinkedIn. I will then be posting things that I know they'll like and stuff like that. And uh, eventually you, rec- you pick up things in marketing on the marketing side of design because you market yourself a little bit better. Eventually I ended up getting another job in the same way I got the job at Chironics, which, which was literally just by being in a shared office space in my hometown in Stevenage. Okay. And so you, you know, you sent out emails, you didn't really get any agencies that were interested, but then you went uh, to the UK and you were freelance and then you like, uh, you s- were you at a co-working space, did you say? Or yeah. And sorry, at the, at the time I was also living in, yeah, the town called Stevenage, which is my hometown, it's pretty much where I just went back to and I has still have a lot of family there. Mm-hmm. Traveling into London wasn't cheap. Yeah. Genuinely. So like it's like a couple hours outside of London? It's like 40-minute train ride. Okay. But it costs £30 to get in and out of London every time you want to go. That makes and me appreciate Perth public transport. It really, yeah, it made me also do the same. I still had my couple of clients from Perth at the time still um, giving me work. But on the, ta- the hours that I wasn't working on uh, work for those Perth clients, I was working on um, maybe the couple different short freelance jobs that I got in the UK, but none of those were coming from central London. That's actually a good uh, thing to note as a designer is like you can still, if you want to travel and work somewhere else, you can still get jobs from Perth. Of course. So like you, yeah. you work for the right company, they'll... Um, They'll value they'll value your skill set no matter where you are, and you can do that as a designer because it's digital work. By all means, yeah. You do it, if you develop those relationships and even just like the trust beforehand, then no doubt they'll uh, they'll trust you to work from anywhere w- where you are, and they'll yeah. And um, how did you find the lifestyle as a creative or as a designer in? The UK it just sucked. sucked? <laughs> no, I know it didn't. Uh, it wasn't like. Is wasn't there a terrible. little? Is there a community that? I guess you were outside of the main city, but but I was ju- I was going into London for specific events and stuff. I remember going in like certain days just for the evening into like into central London and attending events that run by companies I've never heard of. But there was just so much exposure to the like some massive companies. Yeah, because like, yep. Yeah, like um, yeah, every single uh, major company you can think of has a headquarters in London, and if they've got one person speaking, it's usually of a high caliber at uh, some kind of industry event. So, oh, I've forgotten their their organizations over DNAD. There's um, Glug Fa- was Facebook. another one. Hmm? I know Facebook has a headquarters over there. Yeah, yeah. So Facebook is uh, my cousin. Their headquarters is, is right next to King's Cross, if I'm not wrong. Oh, wait, no, I'm, I think of Google. My cousin, if he's listening, shout out Rory. Works <laughs> at Facebook there, <laughs> I think. Um, but, yeah, that is, that's kind of a positive thing if you're a creative oh, that was and you want to travel, yeah. then you're, you're getting more exposure to bigger companies, organisations. And the thing about Perth in the art scene is there's an interesting phenomenon where even if you are making amazing work here, you have to be co-signed by London, co-signed by New York, like saying if you're an artist, like, oh, 
that person's been exhibited in New York. Wow, we're going to take you seriously now. It's I think it's the same thing the, in design where okay, you've you've been worked, you know, you maybe did a job for Google in London. So now Yeah, it's, uh, that's why your logo brag wall really matters, isn't it? But you've really got to flaunt it once you've gone over to somewhere, uh, somewhere outside of Australia. Like if you've if you've done work outside of Australia and come back here, you've really got to flaunt it to make yeah. sure that people people know well where your influences might have been, even if it's like one job out of Australia. You got to yeah, be like, for sure. Oh yeah, I've I've had it. I've had an international experience. It it takes uh, even as an artist, like you can just have a little exhibition in New York, <laughs> in Tokyo, in Paris, and then say, okay, I'm an internationally. <laughs> exhibited artist or i've been exhibited blah, 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 in paris mm. then it's it's a flex it is and yeah if you if uh, the chances are it works out in your favor anyway like a lot of people will recognize it even if you've only got one piece of artwork on the wall in a graffiti ridden street in amsterdam yeah be like okay oh cool so you were you, you had the balls to put your artwork there okay cool yeah <laughs> And um, did you do any work for maybe like a big organization or something like that there? I'd like to say I did, but no. Actually, I did. Uh, I managed to fall into the luxury branding um, sector just by chance because there was another, there was a guy who ran an agency in my hometown, which was also only like a three-person agency. But he strictly only worked with luxury brands, and he was well marketed. What's an example of a luxury brand? Um, so art galleries and book publishers, and um, what was it yacht brokers and okay. helicopter brokers and stuff like that? It was it was really really uh, yeah art dealers as well. That's like a high that's high paying industry. No, actually, that's <laughs> not. <laughs> It has the uh, it has the image like, you of should have seen my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> no, it has the image of being a high paying uh, industry, but it's it's not as there's it's not as much flow, uh, money flowing as you might. Think. Oops, I remember it because when I went to London, because I'm sure where you were saying it was maybe reasonably priced, but I remember London being very expensive, like living cost wise, compared to here. Yeah, you don't want to live in central London. That's ridiculously expensive. But even food and stuff, it seemed to be quite high priced. Was it, or did you find it? It, it yeah, it was. But I think that was also relative to how much I was earning there, um, which was it, it. It was okay for where I was living, and uh, if you live outside of central London, you you're already like you your cost of living is a hell of a lot lower than anyone inside of central yeah. London. But then you got those damn train fees. For a forty-minute trip, of course. Wow, that's crazy. And it's it's really odd, actually. You pay you pay a lot more to get into London from outside of London, uh, even though you can get into central London faster than someone on the outskirts of London. So, for anyone who already knows the rail network in in central London, you've also got like you've got zone one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. To get from zone six into zone one of London, it could take you upwards of an hour. Whereas if you travel in from up north or down south, it will take you less than half an hour. It also makes me appreciate, or just being in London and traveling on the the trains there, and also in Japan. Just it's so it's so simple here. There's like 
four lines or something like that. I, don't I know. cannot get over Japan. Like They're Japan, just m- they are a nation which just makes every Western country look terrible <laughs> in yeah. terms of like punctuality, and standards, oh, yeah. of, uh, standards of public transport. But I'm I'm thinking I was thinking um, as an international traveler, just the train. Like obviously Japan, you have the language barrier, uh, so the confusion with the trains. But London, also their their subway is like quite confusing to navigate if you're like a traveler there. Oh yeah, if you don't have if you don't compared to Perth, because like we got four lines. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah, we've got four routes that get you into the city in Perth, whereas if you're in Central London, and you don't have the time to look over the tube map, getting around can be pretty tough. Mm. No question. But it's also got... Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, I have so many opinions on the underground. Well, I just want to add... There. <laughs> I want to add, uh, if anyone wants to improve the public transport system here, can we please get some more parking? Like, it's... I can't use the trains because, like... Well, I, I always have to, like, park on some, like or something to catch the train in. So that's something we need to improve here, but <laughs> that's my take. I'm with you. Oh, God, we don't have... Uh, we have a lot of room for improvement, but to be honest, I, I can... Th- there's so much that I can't complain about when it comes to p- transport as well. Like, anywhere you genuinely need to go, chances are there's going to be a train or a bus that takes you there. But if you want to do exploring, yeah, you might need a car. Mm. Yeah, we... There's a lot of positives with the Perth transport system, and this does relate to design because it's human design. Um, and they're a massive client when it comes to like agencies in Perth. Because if, yeah. if if an agency loses Transperth as a client, they also lose some of their designers. Yeah, because they'll go, they'll move over to the agency that actually got, did win them. For sure. Um, someone said something that was interesting about the the transport system here is like we don't use the space around the transport stations effectively like there could be little stalls or shops and i think in london i believe you have more of that sort of you do but i think in uh, london in general as an example is a very um just a busy place that demands all that yeah there's so many places in perth that just don't demand that like in fact, there's so many uh, so many aspects of Perth that aren't demanded after five o'clock in the evening. That's true. I think that also relates to why maybe we don't have a, f- uh, a value on creativity because most of the mentality here is go to work, come home. There's no reason to hang around like in Japan, South Korea, London. Yeah, like anywhere across Asia. If you want to get food in the middle of the night, yeah, it doesn't matter. You don't you don't have to travel very far, and plus it's open at midnight. Yeah. Um, uh, I might be opening up a different kind of worms there. Hey, this, <laughs> this podcast is open for that. Um, in terms of, I'm just interested in the train line in, in the UK because I haven't been there for a while. When you were catching the train, did you drive to a car park like here and then catch the train or did you normally get for the bus in or? For a considerable amount of time in the UK that I was in the UK last, I didn't have a car. Did you ride? No, I used to just take a bus. So, Getting a bus, then getting on the, on the train that will take you into cent, uh, central London. That was the kind of. So what most people do is they're parking. I'm sure there's parking around the station. There, and there, uh, there, there was, but it was never enough. Yeah, so it's the same. 
yeah. problems here. I think I think it's a little more severe in different in the parts of the UK that I was frequent I in. I think we do have a good here, and I'm just, you know, like I don't know. I think uh, you know what you're saying might uh, might still be relevant in some True. areas in Perth. Like, uh, no doubt there is some improvement happening because I think the government recognizes that that kind of that kind of improvements needed. But there are also some. Uh, it, it's fair to say that, like, yeah, some places now have more parking than need be. Just, yeah, and just talking about city structure, and obviously this is, none of us are, like, sort of have an educated background in this, I guess, talking from me. But interesting thing is in Perth is, say, if you park in some of these uh, parking organisation, parking spaces, kind of like Wilson, you pay more if you go there and you park and you pay you actually end up paying more than if you parked somewhere and got a fine <laughs> that's what i find which is interesting that, that actually makes sense now that you mention it i was just like that i can think of the amount of times that i i parked in northbridge maybe got away without paying and then eventually i'd get a fine and it'd still be less than you how much yeah. i'd paid like that in wilson a wilson park. <laughs> yeah wilson car park we're giving them too much airtime. <laughs> um, an organisation we hate. We're giving Wilson car parking way too much airtime. <laughs> Wilson, you charge too much free parking, so yeah. Sponsor this podcast. But I do want to add. <laughs> there's one okay for the photographers out there. There's one Wilson car park on Murray Street that it's like the number one spot for people to hang out and shoot photos and that sort of thing because you get it's on uh, Murray Street sort of near Magnet House and the next to the old Tiger Lils which I think isn't running but yeah top of that car park you get a city view it's great for shoots in the day and the night yeah and also cars people drive up with the cars so it's kind of like a little career spot so I appreciate Wilson for that for that only still hate you Wilson but there was a point last year when they just had secu- paid security from block people from coming up there. So, I don't know. You hear that, Wilson Car Parking? Yeah. They're listening Wilson right security. <laughs> this guy needs 24-7 access to your yes, car parks. Yes, Because he's going to make them look good. Yeah. Um, And then travel-wise, I want to talk about your travel. So, you mentioned, you know, obviously you're from the UK, but you said you went to Japan. And oh, no. Europe. Haven't been to Japan oh. yet. Okay. But, God, it looks attractive, doesn't it? It is. It's an amazing place. You have been there. I, oh, I was in Kyoto for two days, but those two days were amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. That says a lot about Kyoto. Yeah. Uh, shout out Kyoto. And I want to definitely want to go back. Um, but what about your travels and have they influenced you oh, as a designer or creative? I don't think consciously. Unconsciously, that, uh, unconsciously, yes, definitely. Like I've had, uh, I've definitely pre- re- uh, like concepted out some artwork that I would have taken in from a place like, I don't know, countries like Thailand or Malaysia or um, the UK or anywhere else that I kind of went. I guess while I was uh, while I was overseas. Definitely California. I got a lot. Oh yeah, California. I got quite a lot of influence from there, but it's 
it's a place that's just full of Silicon Valley is where yeah Silicon Valley uh, specifically is where I, I was staying but that meant that meant I also got a lot of like exposure to San Francisco mm. and man the uh, the design scene over there is interesting and I'm not really sure how else to describe it apart from interesting at the moment. So I, I do want to f- focus on Cali and San Francisco because I think they do have a thriving design community. They're obviously, Silicon Valley, Apple's headquarters is there as well. Some big, yeah, well, Apple, Twitter, you know, Facebook, Facebook Google, pretty every much everything. Si- yeah, every single like startup you can think of, or uh, Uber, everything. Yeah, or yeah, tech company will have a headquarters in Silicon Valley. And it, therefore, it makes it a very, very en- like energetic place to work, but also makes it a very, you know, uh, uh, how, well, whereabouts in the States have you been? So when I was really young, I went over there with family. I think we stayed in San Francisco. I remember we traveled to LA, probably California, Hawaii, been to Hawaii. Uh, nice little stop off in Hawaii, isn't it? Yeah quite a while ago but yeah it's definitely a place that i'd want to go back and it's an attractive place for me because i i'm interested in tech and uh so silicon valley is definitely interest, an interest for me no question i mean it uh i don't really know how to describe it it's a mix of the american vibe with a lot of energy around tech because i don't uh, i do know a few people who are working in tech companies there but they have also like not lasted very long from one company to the other, because it seems to be quite a lot of the culture over there that if you're if you're working in tech, you jump from tech company to tech company within a year or so, and if you stick around at one company, the chances are you stick in you stick there for a while. Do you think tech is the right like tech tech is the right word to describe the Silicon Valley technology? Because when I think of technology, I think of like. You know, obviously, I think it's more of a software, like, because, like, technology, I think of more of hardware. Like, and when I think of hardware, I think of China. On the manufacturing side. Yeah, so... Harry, the place is called Silicon Valley. (laughs) The silicon chip was invented in Silicon Valley. But is it made in Silicon Valley? I think it's more software. Software is written there, definitely. It's like it's like iPhone. The iPhone was uh, invented there, but it's made in China. Yeah, Um, I think it's more software because it's social. It's more social media. I'm I'm just thinking out loud now, but yeah, it's more software companies, social media companies, uh, and startups. But tech. When I think of tech, I think of technology and the actual devices, which is made in China and Asia usually. Fair enough. It's where it's where a lot of tech is designed. Yeah, designed. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I think that's probably where the reputation comes from. A lot of the tech is designed in in Silicon Valley. Interesting. IBM, Microsoft, and so on, and pretty much all the all the manuf- uh, computer manufacturers as well. Like they they design all their stuff in Silicon Valley. It, yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it now because, um, yeah, that's where it's created. So, like, Apple was created in uh, Palo Alto. Yeah. And the Apple hub is in, 
California. Uh, so it is like a creative, definitely a creative place, a place that influences creativity. Yes. But it's also a got lot of that startups very, very come, American come vibe. There. Like the American vibe I'm, I'm referring to is like you, once you get a job, you're fine. Probably quite a high, a high yeah. level, high yeah. average income in Silicon Valley itself because, um, was it designers are just really high in demand? If yeah. you work, if you work in the tech space and you have a uh, software developing uh, background, or you, if you, or you're a programmer, you're easily worth like mid six figures for sure. Yeah. But like that's not considered a, a an average high income, or rather it's it's an average income in in California because there's just so there's so much mon- money running around there. Did you follow what happened with like Elon Musk taking over Twitter and the employee situation oh, and that course. sort of thing? I am an avid Twitter user, which um actually now more lately I've been consuming more than I have been um putting things into there mm. so what was your thoughts Sorry, on this consuming situation? more than contributing that's the term i was looking for oh just the, the, it was it was just the things that were happening to cause a stir weren't there because like you could tell that, that um elon musk does what he does just to just to cause a stir he's um he definitely knows definitely knows how to work with like social media and He's a very interesting person. I just in the way that he's a CEO, a, a entrepreneur, a visionary that's you know created all these. You know, he started PayPal, you know, created Tesla and uh, SpaceX and yes, got very admirable the background. Boring company, but also he's like. He relates to you on a human level as well in the way that he can post stuff online, he posts jokes, memes, and he does stuff that are like memes or like dad jokes and that sort of thing. But that's it's he's an interesting guy. Interesting is probably the way to put it. <laughs> but um I'm trying to I'm trying to find uh, find the article to fact check it to see, but he apparently he laid off like a whole bunch of stuff like I don't know if it was in the thousands, but... When he took over Twitter? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, from my understanding, he did just some ridiculous moves while he was there. In the short time that he he was, like, running the company, he realised how difficult it was going to be to run Twitter. So, according... Like, yeah, I'll just say this, sorry. According to the Economic Times, uh, the company fired... Or Elon, the company, fired nearly 500 employees in June. Um, so, yeah. I said, no, Elon Musk. And then according to NDV TV World News, Elon Musk fires over 4,000 contractual employees. So that's quite insane. Yeah. The numbers that massive. But, like, uh, I don't know. I saw all this stuff on... Um, wouldn't want to be at the nasty end of that. I mean, uh, uh, but that's the kind of thing that happens. In, uh, it's possible to happen in Silicon Valley, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you could be out of a job whenever, whenever because of the 
company just feels like it. Because, like, I saw this stuff on on TikTok, and I don't know how real that is, but it was basically like the employees at Twitter were like doing nothing, like they had to come to work and they were just like wondering what they were going to have for lunch and they had like bean bags and like there's this Gen Z or Gen Y uh, impression of how work should be or how work is and it's like all about bean bags and slides and like it was kind of like a meme of how the staff at Twitter actually didn't have to do anything and didn't put in work and that was kind of Elon's mindset. It was like, what are all you people doing here? Like, and then he just kind of fired them in and he was like, we're just going to run it from the ground up with like this number of employees that we need. So that was interesting. That's interesting you mentioned that. That's been a conversation topic that hasn't turned up in ages actually. Because I remember when like if you'd looked up the day in the life of a designer probably like eight years ago, that would pretty much be what you get. Yeah. Like it would be someone who's just like, oh, I wake up at six thirty in the morning. I get my, I make my smoothie, and then I get I get a bus to, to work, which I travel an hour to, and yeah. then I'll get my mocha frappuccino in the morning yeah. before yeah, 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 I yeah. get to my desk, and then I read articles until eleven a.m., and then so on and so on, and take a nap in the afternoon and whatnot, and you're drinking by two o'clock. Yeah, fair enough. Um, that was basically what it was. <laughs> It's weird how much of that I could recite from seeing one video. Um, but yeah, that was... I think that's fair enough on Elon's part. And like I guess it, it speaks to... I don't know, maybe the work ethic of Gen Y, Gen Z. But that's the, the opportunity they, they got exposed to. Like, they sooner or later realised when, uh, when companies that big were hiring a lot of people... They saw talent, but also didn't have a lot of work for mm. that talent to do. So therefore, they might be having some kind of influence in development of a company, but they might not be having enough of a, enough of an influence to visually justify it on a balance sheet. Mm. And then there was the other thing, like Twitter's kind of a big been a big topic for the past couple of months with the takeover from Elon Musk, and also with I don't know if you have. Uh, if you have much of an interest in censorship in terms of social media, like, uh, yeah, there's different tiers of censorship depending on the social media platform and Twitter was seemed to be censored quite a bit. Also, they, they I think they banned Trump from Twitter and yeah, so Kanye censored, West. But and it also seemed um, like political. Yeah, it had a political um, political influence. Uh, and, yeah, they, they claimed that that political influence didn't determine whether they promoted a tweet or not, but according to the Twitter files that are being released, it did. Um, so now Elon Musk has it. He's, uh, yes, that is one of the things he exposed, isn't it? Yeah. And like lo- yeah, the, apparently there were a lot of conspiracy theories around it and a lot of them came out as true, which I haven't looked into, but it's very interesting. I also haven't looked into this. As a Twitter but user, I, yeah. As a Twitter user, yes, I should know more about the platform I use. But uh, that also brings me on to the, the topic of different social media platforms and uh, how much we should be utilising them in different ways. Yeah. I've noticed that the user 
the user base in Australia for Twitter is ridiculously low. Yeah. Because I I think I understand um, that no one really has an interest to use it because it's just purely written and it's very, very limited to characters. And that, that, that was enough of a reason for a lot of people in Australia not to use it to begin with. But now it's just become so easy to get uh, just... Exposure? Not exposure. Not so much anymore. As a platform, it's just full of so many arguments. Oh, okay. It's just it's full more of... an so argumentative platform. Yeah, exactly. It, it's where you're going to get your most direct haters from. <laughs> If you if you make it big on Twitter, you immediately just get more abuse than you get positive mm. back from it. So Could, therefore, yeah. uh, there's enough of a reason for people not to be on there. Would you advise it? Um, do you think? Do you recommend it as a platform for creatives to use? Absolutely. If you know if you know what you're doing with any social media platform, which after spending a few hours on it, you should have a fairly good understanding of what what that platform is good for. Mm you could use it in a very, very, like, so you could use it to your advantage very easily because it's a place for opinions. Mm. It's a pure, uh, it's not only, sorry, it's not purely um, text-based, but it is, it's a, uh, it's a written platform rather than your image platforms like Instagram or Facebook. It majority of the content that comes on Twitter is opinions and, I guess, yeah, written content. Which I, uh, it's one of those bases you should be covering marketing-wise because you should be going where where attention is in general, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Twitter just has, uh, even though it has a lot of nasty attention, it's still a place where attention is. Yeah, I, so my experience with Twitter when I was posting more personal photography content, I wasn't there and it was, I did notice a shift in for one um they introduced the chat component you know it's like uh i forget what the the previous app was but where you can actually talk to people verbally um and then it seemed like they changed it so the algorithm was better for people who post and using hashtags so some of my posted quite well but then since i focus more on this podcast which doesn't have a twitter account thinking maybe i should um, I stopped posting on there, but I think it is, it's good for its niche audience. Like people who are on there really enjoy it and they want to get involved and like, and talk and has, have their say. Yeah, of course. No, def- it, you're going to reach a particular section of your market there. So it's uh, it's definitely not, uh, not a place I can um, slag off completely and advise that people stay off of. But if you're ready for what you're going to see on there, which is often exactly what you're looking for then it's a platform that sh- that really should be utilized from a ma- marketing perspective and if you're if you're a creative it makes sense to be marketing on a platform where there's attention for sure yeah i think probably yeah stay tuned guys uh, digital <laughs> creators twitter coming soon um also i didn't ask you about apple in cali because you went to cali and you visited the was it, did you see the Apple headquarters or? So, yes. I uh, went to uh, Cupertino, but I didn't actually go inside the massive circular ring thing. But I did go, I did go to their original building, which was on number one Infinite Loop. which I, That's an amazing name of a road to have, Infinite Loop. 
It is infinite. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, um, and any anything you kind of picked up from that experience? Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, you know what? I uh, I got lunch there with a with a mentor of mine, and uh, just going in, there's obviously a lot of security. There's a lot of secrecy within the Apple building. Like, you, uh, if you're an employee there, you're not allowed to share that many photos of what your workplace looks like and whatnot. Because there's a lot of mystery around the Apple brand and how they come up with their products. Um, I went, <laughs> I went into their um, just their workers' canteen, and that's that alone was a very unique experience because they've got pizza boxes designed by Apple. Oh, really? Wow! Did you take one? I would. <laughs> I know. People, people are flogging them on eBay. Like people who work at yeah. Apple, are just like they pick up a handful of wow. them and then probably flog them on eBay as like official Apple. Pizza box. Did you have an apple pizza? I can't remember if I did. I think I might have had pasta there. Apple pasta? Damn. <laughs> apple that's pasta. A, that's a grail. <laughs> I would have taken one of those pizza boxes as a grail, which is like an item that you can like keep in your house or something. Yeah, I don't know if the security would have let you out with that. With a pizza box? Yeah, I don't know. Damn, I want to I wanna see an apple pizza. Pizza box now. Wait, I let me let me let me look at it. I got a friend who just like who was in the building who wanted to take a photo of a chair, an Apple design chair. Or it's like just a nice looking chair, and immediately as soon as they took a photo of it, they had a security guard behind really? them going, "Get rid of that." Okay, Apple pizza box is a thing. Wow, that's actually really yes, interesting. Yeah, that's the one I was, I was looking at. <laughs> so it's like this round. There's a round pizza box with holes in it. I like how it's not square. That actually makes a lot of sense. And it's got like, yeah, little holes in it and... Yeah, the holes are, are to make sure it doesn't get like too steamy and condensed in there. It makes so much sense that it's round. Why are pizza boxes square? Something that a lot of us don't don't even bother thinking about. Partially because it would probably waste a lot of cardboard. It, it, uh, like okay. the manufacturing of cardboard pizza boxes would change completely if you had to go make them circle. True. <laughs> There's probably some nuances, nuanced reasons for that. Some industrial designer who's listening to this will probably correct me on that. But my guess is is because it's more cost efficient to make a square box than it is a round one. It's cardboard. Come on. Uh, still, th- the shapes are going to be cost efficient. If it tes- if it tessellates, it's better. That's true. And also, holding a circular pizza box, you have less grip because it's not rigid. So you you know more chance you're going to drop your pizza. Yeah, and everyone who w- who has a uh, Apple pizza box isn't supposed to be traveling more than more further than their desk somewhere in the within that same building, Fair or rather enough. within that same grounds. Also, Apple patterns a redesigned pizza box that stops crusts from getting soggy. So apparently it stops the crust from getting soggy. That's that's quite interesting. Let's have a read here. So yeah, Apple patterns a, patterns a redesigned pizza box that stops crust from getting soggy. How does it do that? It's like a whole... No joke, they actually have a full pattern on that. So the lid of the box features moisture 
moisture channel <laughs> moisture channeling feature to provide a path which excess moisture can be transported out of the container. Okay, so yeah, that makes sense. Ah, uh, okay, so that was written by some product designer. And okay, that makes sense because you don't want because I was thinking you don't want your pizza to be dry, but there's more chance it's going to get soggy than it's going to get dry. So hence the moisture channel channeling. What else we got here? Um, okay, here we go. So... Uh, the pizza box has been created under the philosophy that being surrounded by perfect items will inspire Apple employees to strive for perfection in the products they create. Well, is it a perfect box? What else? Like, yeah, the moisture thing works, but why is it round? Probably just made more sense at the time. Because uh, they're not going to be made out of cardboard. They're going to be um, moulded. Okay, so it's it's mostly about, you know, so the pizza doesn't get s- soggy. And probably stays in one place. Ah, okay. The rigid surface forms a gap between the pizza and the base, thermally isolating the cheesy goodness inside uh, to stop it from getting cold so quickly. Oh, so basically, because it's round, it's more compact, there's less airspace in there so it can actually keep it warmer it's more effective to keep the pizza warm mm-hmm. that makes sense that makes a lot of sense okay but in terms of the cardboard you it can't be that more expensive i think once you've got a production line i want i want some round pizza boxes i don't like square anymore <laughs> anyway that's interesting um i want to get on to it's all about cost harry yeah, all about true. cost there's a reason uh, why australia <laughs> There's a reason why we don't drink the water that comes from the ocean off the coast. It's because it's cheaper to get it from overseas. True. Wow. There's so cheaper many. to get it bottled, uh, bottled at a distillery at the bottom of a mountain, <laughs> and shipped over here. That's the whole philosophy of here. Like, if we were creative-minded enough, we could make that happen. I mean, there there is actually a s- recent salination plant that came. Out recently, actually, I need. To, I want to talk about that. Let me let me find it quickly. Quick search. It, it was. It's interesting. I just forget what it, I think it's to do with salination, but I was like, oh, I should talk about that on the podcast. Um, and very on the pulse. One of the photographers that I interviewed, Matsu, did some work for the Matsu photos, and Kevin from Tame Impala was. One of the poster boys for the campaign. Okay, where is it? What a unique kind of girl. What I know. <laughs> he's actually, he's been a poster boy for vaccines and like other environmental Oh, there we are doing a bit stuff. of the community. I like that. Um, Not only producing great peaks. Making sure your water's clean as well. God, I can't find it now. No. Um, but while I'm finding that, I want to talk about animation branding because you 
brought that up before. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was an interesting topic, but I'll let you start talking about, like, why you find it interesting. Yes, branding in general. Uh, Because, yeah, that's that's an area I've chosen to have an interest in and an expertise in. I did manage, I did get exposed, obviously, to um, visual identity and uh, the motion within visual identity that brings it to life. And the first example I can think of that I, I really dove deep on was the Premier League rebrand. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so you know, uh, you remember what the Premier League logo used to look like? Um, wasn't it, <laughs> just off memory, wasn't it too, it was like a crest? Yeah, it was a crest that involved uh, a lion on it. Okay, let's see, can you bring up the EPL, the new EPL or the old one and the new one. Maybe I can even bring it up here. Uh, yeah, I need to reconnect my Wi-Fi. Oh, i got here. New EPL logo. Okay, so it was... Um, oh, here we go. go okay, so it was a lion. Yes. Yeah, it was, it was a full lion and the Premier League written underneath it. The, so the rebrand to the single lion with a crown... And the words Premier League next to it was done by Design Studio. And that is a design studio just called Design Studio. Okay. Um, they did the rebrand, brought all the colours into it. Looks amazing. Still carries on the message of the... What do you mean? All, you mean uh, these colours here? Because yes. that's just a single colour. Okay, so yeah, those are the... All the colours that... Variations. Um, that, comes, uh, that come with it and kind of ex- expand onto different areas of identity different touch points. But then as soon as that needed to be applied to a digital screen and uh, TV for uh, broadcasting, then it had to be put into motion. And the agency okay. that took that on was Dixon Baxi. So D-I-X-O-N-B-A-X-I. Mm-hmm. And they are, they're a s- relatively small agency in, in central London. Yeah. And an agency I've looked up to ever since I was studying at TAFE. Like their, oh wow! Their interpretation of the Premier League was just phenomenal. The, it, in in their development, it brought motion and comp- uh, a cohesive theory, visual theory, into um, the identity of that brand. Like it, everything had every movement had a point to it, and I love that. Yeah, every I guess gra- uh, collection of graphics. Got got its own use case across different touch points, different uh, shows that were put on just around the Premier League, and yeah, everything. Uh, it, uh, what they developed was so cohesive and really, really just like crisp looking. It In terms of the animation, because yep. you you said they were animation focused, weren't they? Yes. Okay. I don't know what they describe themselves as, uh, but the, as far as I know, they're a branding agency with a focus on motion and uh, bringing brands to life. Because, yeah, like uh, we were talking about this before, is as a designer, you think about logos, you think about branding, but you don't really think about animating logos and 
if you want to make yourself kind of stand out from the crowd, that's something that you can focus on as a designer that's for sure. Yeah, that's not only something you can focus on on its own. You can you can develop a uh, a logo from scratch that has the ability to be animated. You don't even have to do the animation yourself. Just if you keep that in mm-hmm. mind that it, uh, when you produce it down the line or when it gets taken over by another designer to uh, apply it to a certain, like, a certain moving application, then animation is going to be taken into account, which is why certain logos will have certain components which can be split from the rest of it and just be like, okay, this can be used uh, just isolated on its own like an icon and you've got the text that goes with it and you've got the typography and the word uh, the word marks it, it's also a way to bring value to a brand like um yeah cuz there's so many logos out there companies with logos where they i think in today's age with video being more and more important it's important to have the animation element and if you're a designer maybe yeah that wants to differentiate yourself I think it's important. It could be good to focus on that sort of thing because even if you want to bring value to a company, say, "Hey, I got your logo here and I animated it." Boom! Like it's it's something that maybe not a lot of people thought about. And yeah, you ma- maybe so. And like I know this, uh, I might be picking on certain designers when I say this, but like you, uh, you don't actually have to have much experience to design a logo and make it work for a company, and it will probably do the job for that company for a considerable amount of time but if you want to if you want to expand their brand and give them opportunity for later down the line you're going to you should really keep a lot of a m- lot more things in mind for the development of that logo and that's why that's one of the things that will separate you from a regular logo designer to a considerably very thoughtful uh brand designer so if if logo design is one of the f- services you offer, are you making sure that it can work? Are you making sure that whatever you produce can work across multiple applications, multiple yeah. touch points? Are you are you making sure that it works in print just as well as it works on the digital screen? Yeah, and this is one uh, this is one of those things that I do uh, I do make a point of um like separating myself with on my website is like I. Uh, as much as anyone else, anyone could be doing a a logo, but the re- one of the reasons you might pick me to uh, to do your uh, your brand identity and everything that comes along with it is the amount of things that I'll keep in mind that can be expanded on after I'm already done with it. If you choose to take your logo developed by me and move it and sorry, give it to another designer or give it to an animator or give it to a a video producer. Is there something they can do to it to make it work across their own applications? Yeah, for sure. Are there any other um, sort of design niches that you would advise for maybe students to focus on that can differentiate themselves? Like obviously animation is a good one. Yes. Is there anything else? Because I think that's quite a good to do well if you're if you're in australia you've got quite a lot of opportunity as it is it's not a very oversaturated market and plus uh for you to offer more than the next designer you might just need to expand on like where your application might be 
which might uh, which might only cater towards a, a specific industry, like for example, sports. Uh, you're you're going to be developing a a logo, let's say for a a local sports team. Is that going to work on a uniform and a sports ball or a racket of any kind? Uh, are you keeping that stuff in mind more? More than the next designer, which you might have graduated with, which doesn't have an interest in sports, mm. but is also reaching the same audience. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'd say think about, uh, yeah, think about everything that could separate you before choosing to learn about, I guess, said topic. Yeah. Um, I didn't find what I was looking for, but I did find another thing that I wanted to talk about. I don't know if you've heard of it. The design, there's a designer called... Mike Hewson, and he created a playground in Melbourne. Um, so it's designed to look unsafe. But you have a look at the photos. It's it's designed to look really dodgy and unsafe, but it's actually like incredibly safe and well designed. I love it. So there were a lot of news articles and headlines talking That's about it and complaints from parents because they thought it was unsafe, but... <laughs> That's brilliant. That's interactive, full spatial design. That is crazy. Yes, the projects like that need so much more exposure. It's amazing, I think, yeah. It is so cool. Like, uh, yeah, just the way it's interactive and it makes you think about things as well, but also it's it's a space for kids to just play and sometimes kids like playing or are attracted to things that are unsafe so it's yeah i think it's a Definitely. cool approach oh it's like putting do not touch on a pe- on, on anything literally anything you can write do not touch on and people are going to be like yeah exactly <laughs> especially kids it's like yeah do not eat this and then they'll just yeah put it in their mouth <laughs> um, of course oddly enough that's another thing i should probably mention like one thing which i overlooked before um if you're designing a brand, that is going to be one one person's entire job to design, let's say, a playground. Yeah, yeah. big a niche. Uh, you say like big a niche sort of thing? Yeah. Well, if you're designing a brand that you know you don't have a skill set to do that and the company that you're working for is going to expand into a like a spatial design uh, or a, what's the word, a space activation, and that's not going to be your job down the line, but you're going to make sure that your work can work, uh, will be able to, uh, oh, sorry, whatever you produce will be able to work with that person's job. Yeah. Because it's going to be handed over to another creative at some point. Mm. You've got to make sure that, like, because we know everything we produce isn't only going to be used by us. It's obviously going to be used by your client. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, and you were saying in London, like, how important it was to have a niche to differentiate yourself as as a designer, it's it's definitely difficult when you start out to pick a niche. But the more you create, the more you can kind of figure out who you are, a designer, and it is it's almost more effective to pick a niche because although you won't fit as many design agencies if that's your thing, um, if you do find a niche, you'll have more of a. I think it'll be more effective in finding. Like a job that fits what you oh, want to do. Of course, do. yeah. Because if you uh, if you're a 
if you're a multidisciplinary designer, you can reach out to a, a lot more people. But if you reach out to everyone, you're not going to be speaking to anyone in particular. So you're better off picking uh, picking your particular market. I think I remember what it is. Uh, so I remember what I was looking up before. It's uh, basically it's a Perth company. I've got it here. Uh, Tame Impala backed biotech, U L U U. I think that's the company name. Ulu raises eight million as it looks to combat plastic waste with seaweed. So I think it turns seaweed into plastic waste. I'll just read the article here. A Perth-based company creating biomaterials out of seaweed to replace plastic has raised $8 million in a seed round uh, led by CSIRO-backed deep tech investor main sequence. So that's another investor. Of course, it's CSIRO, isn't it? Um, In addition to securing contributions from celebrities like Carly Kloss and Tame Impala frontman Kevin Parker, uh, founded by Dr. Julia... Racer and Michael Kingsbury in 2020. Um, Ulu will raise the capital injection to scale the production. Da, 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 da. Anyway, it, it turns seaweed into plastic. Some or replaces plastic. plastic with seaweed. Yeah, that one. So they say our, ferment, our fermentation process, which is similar to brewing beer, allows to maintain a clean production and process using ocean resources, including seaweed and seawater. I think that's pretty cool because it's like a little tech, yeah, tech or whatever. Like it's a new st- development, definitely. Uh, like uh, that's a that's a space that's not really being utilized much in in Australia, really. So yeah, it's good to see that uh, sort of startups like that in Perth. Um, and then last couple of topics, I want to talk about the um, the branding of electric vehicles. So, like, um, back to automotive, by the way. Yeah, yeah. back to automotive. So, I, I want to jump into the logos that we were going to look at, but do you have any points you want to raise around EV branding? EV branding. Like most automotive branding, usually uh, well it can come across as one-dimensional. And you know that for, for sure that uh, anything that's being developed now um, – in terms of in the car, in the automotive market, um, electric seems to be the most, or it's gained the most traction, obviously, because every every car company and their mum are just producing more and more electronic vehicles. And electric uh, electric power is taking over drastically, even though it's not the only alternate fuel right now. Hydrogen power as well. Okay. Yeah, and uh, definitely the past few years i'm not sure if tesla was the introduction to of electric vehicles in the automotive industry but they were, they were definitely the company that they pushed they had it the and make it commercially viable they made they had the most traction easily right uh no pun intended but yeah, the, uh, Tesla, even though they weren't the first company to make an electric car, because the electric car came out decades ago, yeah, they were the first to focus on it to the point where everyone started taking notice. And they are they uh, at the time of releasing their first car, they had so much 
a brand awareness that um, people had no choice but to listen to mm. electric de- uh, vehicle development. And also, uh, they uh, a lot of people just understood when uh, we're going to have to go electric at some point. And I think at the point where they entered the market, Tesla was the smartest choice to get an electric vehicle. Therefore, everyone who was buying a new car who was getting electric and converting over from petrol-run vehicles didn't make sense for them to do anything but buy a Tesla. Mm. In fact, I, I would say quite right now, in uh, 2023, the, uh, the vehicle that makes the most sense to buy if you're buying electric is a Tesla because of their road network. No other, co- uh, no other company is putting as much work as Tesla has into their um, like recharge network that goes across like oh, pretty much everywhere that um, petrol stations are. Like the yeah. uh, Tesla is developing the most to integrate um, electric vehicles onto the road. Is it because I I don't have too much experience with electric vehicles, but I'm I'm assuming the charging ports will be the same around cars. So with Tesla, you know, I Tesla has their own. Um, they have their own standard for. Is it universal? Uh, are the, so are the charging bays universal? Or? My, uh, I think there's a universal uh, socket, but Tesla have their own patented patented one for supercharging. Yeah, and no one has, no one has developed the network, or even the cars that, that can supercharge faster than a Tesla one can. Which is interesting because I believe Elon put the patents out for free, like basically showed how these Teslas are made. Mm-hmm just so other people would develop cars, electric vehicles. I think that well, other other car companies definitely started developing, but uh, I don't think uh, Tesla supercharger caters for all cars. I think they, they're really good, and that's probably the separating factor. You know what, let me just quickly check. Um, so I'm going to... Yes. So Need more fact-checking. Uh, <laughs> Are Tesla charges universal? Yeah, I think you're right. Question, but do superchargers uh, post support to all connector types? This port, this pilot is only accessible for CCS enabled vehicles. Don't know what that is. If its supercharger post has two cables, okay, non-Tesla cars can only charge with the CCS connector. Okay, so the the Tesla charging base of two ports, probably one universal and one Tesla. Tesla is unable to accommodate vehicles that do not fully comply with the CCS communication yeah, uh, protocols. So what is CCS? That leads you down a complete other rabbit hole, doesn't it? The combined charging system. Okay, so I'm assuming that's the yeah, that's the standard uh, electric vehicle charging system. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, you were saying uh, Tesla, uh, they invested more in the charging uh, stations the, the around network, yeah, the yeah. network, yeah, which is very smart. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. well uh, for us to develop a road network like it is today, we had to develop. Uh, we had to install petrol stations mm. every so often to make sure that cars can go wherever you need them to go. I think uh, 
just think has to be done with electric vehicles. Yeah, e- Elon and Tesla is an example where, you know, us as creators, we can actually move faster as uh, if we, as individual creatives or like, for example, Tesla as a company, then the government. The government will probably follow, you know, uh, these follow innovative the companies and follows the market. So now Elon, you know, pushed this market, invested in this charging base. So now eventually the government's going to probably create, like, charging base possibly. But that's a good example of how creative or creative-minded people and organisations are ahead of government organisations and create can create markets like that. Of course. Yeah. Um, let's jump into the logos. For our last uh, little segment, so we're going to look at some <laughs> logo Let's cross over those automo- the automotive <laughs> subject and branding again. Exactly, um, designers pay attention. So these logos were rebranded in 2021, I believe. Let's check that. Sometime over the last three years. Yeah. So in the last three years, uh, these logos have rebranded with the influence of electric vehicles. So. Ash and I are going to look at them and we're going to discuss them. Yeah, so let's, let's either rip them to shreds or compliment them. Let's see, let's see how good these car companies have done. I'll just, sorry, I'll just for one second add in the window capture so you can see what we're looking at here. Of course. Boom. So I'm going to go in this corner. And Ash will go in the other corner. <laughs> Probably should have added this before, but anyway. All right, so for our first one, we're going to look at... Who we got here? All right, BMW. BMW. So Bavarian Motorworks. Oh, is that what it stands for? I didn't even know. Okay, so we got BMW here. This is their old logo. This is the new one. What are your thoughts? Now, we know that to get to that point, they've already evolved considerably. Yeah. And a lot of people ridiculed this new one without the black ring on the outside. When it was released, a lot of people just like to uh Said, oh yeah, it's it's strong enough recognized if you just have the the blue and the white circle. Um, I'm I'm actually not a uh, I'm not a header of the new logo. What they what they evolved into actually made sense for the application because they want the ring on there for the sake of uh, logo application. They want to include the the letters BMW on there, and it needs to be. It needs to work as a badge. Yeah, it's well, it's cleaner. It's definitely just a cleaner design. They just removed the three D element of it. Yeah, that's certainly a trend at the moment. Like any uh, any car company that's moving uh, moving with the times is taking away their three D elements and uh, making sure that their logo can work on in a more flat manner. I'm not yeah. saying that's that's the only reason why you should go to that uh, that direction, but it yeah, 
Uh, yeah, BMW, I, I believe, did a pretty good job. And after maybe a week of everyone moaning about their new logo, they understood it. I mean, this would look much better on like a nice vehicle, I'm thinking. Just, I don't know if I agree with the fill. So they filled the inner parts and then the outside they haven't filled. I don't know if that works as well. Maybe that the inside should have also been a line to match it. Because if, if you think of like a like a really nice car, you want like those kind of minimal logos look a little bit better. It looks a little bit more modern. Uh, with the fill here, it seems like either they should have filled the outer ring or they should have just left the inner as uh, an outline with the colors. Thoughts? I, I can get I can get behind your thoughts with that, but at the same time, BMW want to highlight certain parts of their heritage, which means that they want um, they pro they probably got given like a handful of different um, options for their logo. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised that they if they had developed probably like three or four different concepts. Mm. For them to have gone with this one, there must have been considerable marketing thought behind it, and as well as like, they've uh, they've got a completely different, let's say a uh, uh, different application for that on their actual cars as well. If you look at where a BMW logo is placed now, I think they were the first company to put their logo on the side of the car. True. So, what do you rate this rebrand out of ten? I mean, not rebrand, like redesign. the logo redesign out of ten. Yep. I'll go with a seven. I know seven's not that strong of a number, but it's also not that weak. Okay, so actually, a lot of people have been doing this, rating out of ten, and then you can't choose seven. So, you, so out of ten, you can't choose seven. Eight. Okay. But, Archie, you know what? I should probably uh, add a disclaimer to this. Let's not uh, let's not take into account what the rebrand has done for the company when we're when we're giving these logos a number out of 10. Actually, sorry, I changed my my mind. I want to keep seven because I feel like that actually fit better. Okay, we're going to keep seven. Vi visually, <laughs> it's, not as, it's not as pleasing as a logo could be, but um, at the same time, it's, it's done a pretty good job in the overall brand. Mm. Okay, yeah, I agree with the seven. Okay, next we're going to go with Nissan. Nissan. So, yeah, they they did... They went completely flat with it. Yeah, they did a similar approach to the BMW so that Cleaner just used more, just the, the important lines. Uh, instead of using the whole circle and bar across, they've just they simplified it. They also took away any potential color from it. So it's it's a lot more versatile of a logo right now because it can be a, placed on a lot more different applications. And although they took away the color, it also adds opportunity to add color because they could just fill in that, that exactly. black as well. Yeah, it's not, it. Uh, you could put that black or in its white form on any other color and it still makes sense as Nissan. And it, yeah, it would fit the EV... Market more obviously with a more modern approach, and I think uh, probably the inspiration for a lot of these EV vehicles is making it look more like Tron. Like even if you look at the design of the newer vehicles, they're having like the line of the lights. Oh, of course. So, which is pretty cool. People just look. Uh, 
I, I don't know what it is about that, but it's just so aesthetically pleasing, isn't it? It just looks so futuristic just to have a, a line of LEDs that makes something look like it's glowing. And I've seen that more on delivery vehicles. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like the, the big white uh, Hyundai. Yes, I know the one that you're talking yeah. about. Which is, I think it's cool. Sick. They seem to be leading the way. I don't know. Yeah. Porsche, oh, Porsche does it as well, I think. Yeah, Porsche definitely has has that style. The whole, the real light that goes across the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, you're rating out of 10? Um, with Nissan, I think strong 9 out of 10. Because uh, it's so much more open to application and a wider application of, of places where you can put that logo and touch points with... Uh, this is uh, getting really nerdy into printing and stuff, but it's actually cheaper, obviously, to print a black and white logo mm. than it is to print something which has 3D aspects to it. I think I'm going to give it an 8 just because I feel like they could have pushed it even further with the modernization of the logo. I think it's it's good. Market wise, right now, I think it fits, but they, you know, they might have to re like, yeah, but I, I think it's really good, really, really good. Okay, next. Fair enough, I get where you're coming from there. Um, you want to make these next few a quick fly around? Yeah, yeah, okay. VW out of 10, um, eight, definitely. It, it, it can still be used in, in the same places that the old logo could be used on. And also, uh, they had a lot to run away from when it came to their reputation with the old logo. I agree. Dieselgate. <laughs> I give it an eight as well. Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. That's a uh, unique one. Um, they already were heading towards uh, electric vehicles when they redesigned this. Yep. I, uh, but also that uh, they have an entire another division of their business which is developing aeroplane engines this is something which is used across both brands if i'm not wrong mm-hmm. um i mean yeah, they've, they've used the original typeface but they've also expanded the brand behind it so there are uh the visual identity elements that they've created with oh, it okay so like it's more colors. about the branding than the logo I yeah think. i think they they've got a new more stronger cohesive brand behind the logo and they've taken away just the right amount from the logo, I think, to make it still recognisable uh, and still hold its place as an icon. So I'm going to give Rolls-Royce a solid um, 9 out of 10 for the brand, but for the for the logo itself, let's go 6. I'll give it the logo itself... Yeah, a six as well. I mean, I get why you've used, you know, you've been influenced by the original one. Um, it's got a lot of heritage it's still behind not it, so that's it's still carrying a lot of weight, branding-wise. Maybe I'll just give it a seven. Okay, next is Kia. Kia, this one <laughs> I love this one actually. It it got quite controversial over the last couple months because a lot of people have since the rebrand have been searching for K and K N car. Ah. 
So it's not as legible gotcha. as it should be. But the this logo itself has more meaning behind it than any other rebrand that I think I've seen on a lot from a larger company. Why is that? Because they actually uh, they modernized a um, a cursive stroke for the letters K I A. Mm. So it was supposed to. Rep, uh, it was supposed to reference a cursive, uh, cursive letters that were written in the same angle, and therefore the the consistency you have with that with those angles was purposely done. It's visually balanced, like if you squint your eyes and you blur that, mm. it makes some. It, it actually looks very very appealing, mm. and when you see that badged on the car, it still does the job. It really looks great. Well. Yeah. yeah, it looks so much more better than the old logo because the old logo had a completely diff- different reputation behind it as well. So I'd, I'd go as far as to say 9.5 out of 10 for their new logo. I give it a 10. I love this logo. I won't ever give anything a 10. It's plainly because there's always room for improvement. But with the Kia logo, I can't. Actually, you know what? No. You know, I, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to lower my score because because it, it it's having the legibility issue. Oh, true. So, actually, that pointing that out when you're when uh, if they were smart about it after they had done the rebrand, they would also have all the adwords. They'd be paying for all the adwords for K N car mm. because they would automatically redirect people to what they're searching for. Yeah, I feel like. Damn it, design is just so nice though, but I get that legibility. I'm going to lower mine to 9.5, but... I'm going to have to lower it to 7, unfortunately, because of legibility. And I, I know from a UX perspective, like user experience and user interface design-wise, you can't have a design for something that isn't legible. I feel like even though it breaks that legibility rule, I'm going to give it points for fashion, which is like sometimes... It, it almost created a different kind of energy to the brand. It's almost like it's the car logo that you haven't seen before. So it's almost created this new identity. People have to reinterpret how they feel about Kia when they see it drive. Like, oh, what is that car? Haven't seen that logo before. What is, even if they interpret it as KN. Uh, you reckon that could It lead. adds like a myster- mystery yeah, to it. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. Persia. Out of 10, lightning uh, round. This is lightning round. Right, of course. Uh, 10. 10? No, <laughs> I can't I give, give it, it a 10. A I can't give it a 10. I'm going to go 9 because it's an it, it's an emblem and it look, it, um, it makes reference back to when they were, um, uh, like, they were really good at motorsport. So, Peugeot, yeah. I'd say... Uh, visually a step backwards aesthetically though and branding wise major leap forwards yeah aesthetically major leap forwards however I think it's looks a lot like Lamborghini Ferrari which are you just saying that because of the bad shape though yeah because like yes the the Italians will pretty much claim ownership to that bad shape so I give it a I'm going to be a seven. Okay, fair enough. 
Renault, another <laughs> French brand. I like this one. I I think aesthetically, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty good as well. I don't know what their branding stats are like. Actually, I haven't looked up this one, uh, but I'm gonna go with eight out of ten. I'm gonna give it a nine. Yeah. God, it was horrible to start with, in my opinion. <laughs> Negative 53. God. God, uh, no, I just hate GM. I give it a one. Ugh. Literally everything that they've done, uh, uh, everything that they did for this and their press release to follow it as well was just like, oh, we're going in a diff- uh, in an electric direction and therefore our entire focus is going to be electric from here on out. Which would mean if suddenly hydrogen took over as a renewable fuel source, Instead of electric, would they have to do another rebrand? Because if that's all they're saying with this logo, then they've really limited themselves. Mm. And God, I don't even need to mention the gradient. But everyone, everyone can recognize that it's it's just freaking. It was outdated before it was released. There's so many bad things I can point out. What do you rate it? I can't go negative, so I'm going to have to go one. It's ugly. Volvo. Oops. <laughs> Accidentally closed. <laughs> Can I undo that? You can go history. Last open window. Volvo. I quite like what they've done with it. I don't actually think it's too much, too different from what the brand was before, so I'm actually just going to go with like six out of ten. <laughs> I'm going to give it a three because I don't like the weight of the circle. I don't like the generic arrow. I don't like, I think they should have changed the font. I can see why they kept it, but I think they should have changed to something more modern. So it's like an awkward blend of trying to be modern, but they're holding on to the past font. Maybe. Maybe they, uh, uh, although I don't know the reason why Volvo wanted the rebrand to begin with. Because they just wanted to be cool. Well, if it was just a, just a result of being trendy, then I guess yeah, it's it's looking trendy. It, it's gone, Trendier. it's gone two dimensional, which is good. Clap, clap for Volvo. <laughs> yeah, I mean it'll last another five years maybe. Mm. But if they actually did, if they had the rebrand for the sake of reaching out to a different audience, then I think I can give them more credit for that. What's your final rating? Six. Still going okay. with six. Going with four. Cool. Uh, well, that's about all we have time for. Thanks, Ash, for coming on. I uh, really appreciate you jumping on. Where can people find you and what you're doing online? Um, Instagram-wise, I am Ash underscore Scribbles. Twitter, I am Ash underscore Vidulia my last name, uh, that's A-S-H underscore uh, V-A-D-O-L-I-A. don't know why I thought, uh, why it took me so long to think of my last name. Um, and I guess LinkedIn, find me there. No doubt, it's a pretty, uh, a pretty good platform to be on. Awesome. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Leave all the links in the, sh- in the uh, show notes and thanks for tuning in. Peace out, guys. Thanks, guys.